this out in Missouri and I mentioned this last week and and this is one that I definitely wanted to do um, and I really feel like it's something very good for us especially now during this season of life for many of you going back to school getting back into your routines um, Again, we've talked many times about being at camp. It's easy to walk with God when you're at camp because you're spending multiple hours each day doing things that are more spiritual. But once you get back into your routines of the day-to-day -day life, things are not that way. We get very distracted by stuff with our families, stuff with schoolwork, stuff with sports, stuff with other commitments. And it just pulls away from that opportunity that we can have to spend more time on our spiritual lives. And so I would take a guess that, you know, if you were to compare the beginning of the summer where you had spent multiple hours at summer camp, being able to read the Bible, to hear the Bible being preached and taught, uh, to have conversations that are more spiritual, to now things have changed very dramatically. And so what you need to really learn is that you need to be more intentional about your spiritual walk. If you really want to grow spiritually, you have to put time into it. And it's the same thing with anything else. You know, I, I heard this a while ago and it really helped me out tremendously. Uh, we are three-part beings, body, soul, and spirit. And if you want to improve your physical health, what do you have to do? You got to work out, got to eat right, and take time doing those things, right? If you want to improve when it comes to your emotional health, what do you got to do? Cry therapy. What's that? <laughs> I missed it. I said cry. Cry. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You need to spend time emotionally. Like, you know, there are certain people that don't spend time with anyone or do anything with anyone and they just really struggle more emotionally. They can't process things. When you go through things that are very, very difficult, like even the circumstance that Ben just shared about that prayer request, you know, those things can emotionally damage a person. And if they don't have a way to process those things and even talk to someone about it, it's very heavy. It's a very heavy burden. And so you have to take time to work through those issues of life emotionally and how to make proper decisions. When you make mistakes and you got to work through those mistakes, learning to accept responsibility for your actions, all sorts of stuff like that, it, it will help you to become emotionally stable. Well, spiritually, the third part of us that a lot of people neglect, if you want to grow spiritually, you have to put time into your spiritual growth and your spiritual well-being. And there's so many people, especially among the lost world, but even among Christian circles, they're so willing to put so much time into their physical benefit. They're willing to put some time, and even a lot of people, a lot of time into their emotional benefit when it comes to their life. But as far as spiritually is concerned, people don't put a whole lot of time into it. They think they can just wake up in the morning, and they can, you know, shoot off a few flare prayers, prayer flares, and they can uh, go and maybe spend some time with God for like 15 minutes reading their Bible and think they're going to grow spiritually. It ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, the only way you can improve in these things is you have to spend good quality time in those areas being intentional about those things. And so a lot of this stuff, you know, you will learn, some of you will learn it the harder way because of just through the mistakes and the, the issues of life as you get older. You'll look back and say, man, I should have spent more time spiritually. But one of the reasons why we have this youth ministry is for you to not get to that point. For us to be able to have these conversations now, to encourage you now to start walking with God now. Because there is no one that is preventing you from walking with God and growing spiritually outside of yourself. I don't care what your circumstances are. I don't really care what your home life is like when it comes to the, your lack of spiritual growth. You have the ability to walk with God right now. You do. And that you are the only one that's stopping yourself from making that happen. Now, it might just be due to ignorance. 
You don't know how to walk with God. There's other issues that you need to work through before you can start trusting God. Maybe there's things that have unfolded in your life. Whatever that is, deal with those things so that way you can actually walk with God. Because we are in a battle. And some of you guys getting back into the routines of school, you've already started to feel some of that pressure already on your spiritual walk. And some of you are have been struggling towards the tail end of your summer and are struggling even more now with the start of school trying to balance all of these things out. And so I wanted to talk about uh, just that battle for your heart last week and really understanding that God has done everything for you in order for you to succeed. And you just need to walk with Him and to trust Him and to believe Him that He has done everything. He has not only saved you, but He's given you everything that you need to be successful in your Christian walk if you're willing to just tap into that and spend time with God and to really lean upon Him and not your own understanding. And this week I wanted to spend some time talking about the enemy. And so some of these things are going to be very, very clear. Some of these things we've talked about in, the, in times past, very recently, um, and even a long time ago. So some of this is going to be a little bit of review, but I want to spend some time working through this because you have to know your enemy. If you're going to be successful, you have to know your enemy. You have to know what you're up against. Anytime I was in sports of any kind, I mean, we are, we're constantly evaluating our enemy, our opponent. I remember when I played basketball and we were going up against a tough opponent, we would learn their plays. We would watch film about ourselves and about the other team. We would even develop brand new plays on the basketball court during practice to go against some of the plays that they were very good at running. We changed the way that we did our defense based upon the way they did their offense. There are so many things that you have to take into account. Now, you can go into a game completely blind and not know anything about your enemy, but if you have a plan, man, you can totally overcome them if you are able to put some hard work into it. And it's the same thing with God. God has made clear who the enemy is and what you should be doing, and even the enemy's tactics, and so you should be aware of these things. So I'm hoping this can be something that will give you just a little bit of a different perspective. And so let's open it up with this, all right? So do you know your enemy? How well do you know your enemy? And here's another question. How well do you know yourself? Do you know your weaknesses? Do you know your strengths? Do you know your vulnerabilities? Because you better believe that the enemy knows. The enemy knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. He knows your vulnerabilities. He knows the spots to get you at the right place at the right time. And so you better know that about yourself. And honestly, maybe if you don't know, Maybe there's some things you already know about yourself or maybe you have some insecurities that you're convincing yourself that you're okay in certain areas when you're really not. I'm telling you a really good way to find out what your weaknesses are is ask somebody that would be honest with you. Ask someone else. Go to someone else that you know that will tell you the truth and say, hey, what do you see in my life as a weakness? Now it takes a lot of maturity to ask that question, but I would encourage you to do that. What do you see in my life that is a vulnerability, that is something that could be open so if the enemy could take me out, that he could? And you need to pay attention. And don't just ask one person, ask multiple. Because the enemy knows your weak spots. And that's the other term that I use as well, is, is blind spots. So sometimes there are blind spots because we are blinded to them. And we don't want to admit that we have those weaknesses. But the enemy knows for sure what those things are. So with that in mind, let's hit our first point here, the goal. The goal. All right, so there's two goals of the enemy. And the first one is to blind the lost. Blind the lost. And let's go to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The first goal of the enemy is to blind the lost. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
And someone read for me verse 3 and 4. 3 and 4. Go ahead, Sam. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Okay, so this is the goal of the enemy. So if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. So the enemy wants to keep lost people blind. He does not want anyone who is lost to see, in verse 4, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Because he knows that once the truth of God shines unto them and they finally understand who they are, who God is, and the gospel, and how much God loves them, and how he died for them, and rose again for them, and how he shed his blood for them, once they start to understand that and that gets in there, man, it changes everything. It can revolutionize their entire life. So the enemy, who's called the God of this world, and that's not a coincidence, by the way, he is the God of this world. He is the God of this world, and everything that he does is trying to keep the lost blinded. And knowing that he's the God of this world, he's very intentional. He is in charge of every aspect of this world. When you think about the countries, when you think about technology, when you think about marketing, when you think about everything that's happening in the world today, his end goal is to keep the lost blind. Everything. And if you, we could dive so far into that, but we just don't have the time to go into that. But that is what he wants to do. He wants to blind, blind them. Take a look at John. I got this one up here. John 12, verse 40. He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Why? That they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. See, God wants to heal each and every person. Why wouldn't he? I mean, if John 3.16 is true, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If that is true, and he died for every man and woman, then you can see that he wants to heal every single person. But there's people that cannot be healed because he, the God of this world, has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart. They should not see or understand. And so God has given you, if you're born again and you understand these things, God has given you the incredible opportunity to be an advocate for God, to be his ambassador, to help people see and to help them understand. So that way they can be converted and they can be healed. That is incredible. And we talked about that on Sunday. There's no greater thing than to experience someone to have just the light just get turned on in their heart and mind. It is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And so the enemy, that's what he wants to do. He wants to blind the lost. The second thing that he wants to do is he wants to defeat the saved. He wants to defeat the saved. After you're saved, he can't do anything to touch you. I mean, you belong to the Lord, and we believe that the Bible teaches that once you're saved, you are always saved, and there's nothing that he can do about it. He can't take away your salvation, but he can do everything he can to disarm you. Because if you're not willing to get out there and to do what God has called you to do, it's more than likely because you are defeated. And you don't think that you're of any benefit to anyone, especially the Lord. And an interesting verse for me on this one is Luke 22, verse 31 and 32, where Jesus told Simon Peter, he said, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The enemy knew that if he could take Peter out, 
that he could take other people out as well. And so you have to make sure to be praying for each other. Be praying for your youth leaders. Be praying for other pastors. Because if the enemy can take out a leader, he can affect a whole bunch of people. If you're in a position of influence, which all of you are, whether you realize it or not, if you're in a position of influence with the people around you, he is going to want to try to do something in you to disarm you and to make you feel like you're defeated and that you're no benefit to anybody. When really you have the greatest thing that you can offer any person on this planet. So you need to remember that. There have been times in my life where I have not witnessed and evangelized people because of sin issues in my life. I feel like I was being a hypocrite because I wasn't willing to deal with some of the junk in my own life. That if I opened up my mouth and I shared the gospel, I'd be a giant hypocrite. And while that may be true, I can do something about it. I can actually deal with my sin, so I'm no longer a hypocrite. And if there are things that I've done where maybe this person won't hear me out because I've lived this way for a period of time, and then if I go and start talking to them about spiritual things, they're like, wait a minute, what? You? Then I'm going to have to be humble and just say, you know what? I was wrong. I shouldn't have been living that way. I was absolutely wrong. And I'm telling you, you shouldn't be living that way either. So it is possible. But a lot of people talk themselves out of these things just because of their poor testimony, past decisions, or whatever. Don't let that be an excuse, honestly. If anything, it can be a great reason why God is choosing to use you in that environment. Because if you're willing to be humble and admit your faults, other people will relate to that. This world is full of hypocrites and people that are just fakers. And people are looking for something that's genuine, that is real. And so if you're willing to deal with it and be honest, my goodness, that will speak volumes to the people around you. And you will be amazed at the people that you can influence if you're willing to be honest and just straightforward with others. But a lot of people aren't. They're just not willing to do it. But in Revelation 3, we won't go there, but in Revelation 3, this is his goal. He wants to get us in a position where we think that we don't need him, but we actually do. And he's very good at it. He has done everything that he can up to this point to defeat Christians. So that way they are not doing anything for the Lord. Nothing for the Lord. And he's been very, very successful. So that's the goal, to blind the lost and to defeat the saved. And he is very, very good at it. So what is the strategy? And we've talked a lot about this over the years. Um, the strategy, and that would be 1 John chapter 2. So go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Give me a reader for that one. All right, Jared, you got that. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Go ahead. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Alright, so the strategy of the enemy is these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. You can see this from the very beginning with Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. We've even spent some time in the past talking about Ezekiel 28 when Lucifer actually fell into sin for the very first time. It was these, these three things. The lust of the flesh, those would be the aesthetics, the, the way that you appear. Those things that gratify the lustful desires of your flesh to appear something that you're not. It's in the form of even 
uh, beauty and other things like that. Um, you have the lust of the eye. These are things that gratify the lustful desires of covetousness, which falls within the realm of materialism and just wanting something that you can't have or that someone else has and then you covet after it. You want that thing. I mean, this is huge when it comes to a lot of youth, when it comes to technology, clothing, shoes, just stuff like that. It's just crazy. And then thirdly, the pride of life. These are the things that gratify that lustful desire to be someone to be someone, to be known for something, or even leaving a legacy as somebody. And a lot of this is fulfilled within our society by knowledge. People feel like if I learn something, and if I go to school to get this certain degree, that I can get this particular job, and it can make me someone, and then my life will be fulfilled. All three of these things are very dangerous because it all involves lust, and it will make you feel like you need something that you don't have, and once you have it, then you will be a better person. And it doesn't work. When you lust after something in your flesh, you feel like you want this because it's going to make you more complete. And guess what? After you have it, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be empty. It may satisfy for a short period of time, but then you're going to realize that it didn't really mean anything. And when it comes to even the lust of the eye, you're coveting after something someone else has whatever it might be you get that thing and it's like oh this is awesome this is incredible but then over a period of time it goes away and now you need something else i mean our entire economic just i mean everything everything in our economy is, is completely built on this when it comes to cars when it comes to clothing when it comes to technology when it comes to you know even you can see it on the on the stinking roadways do you know they can actually build road, roadways that have asphalt that never break down they have the technology it exists. And yet, do they do it? No. They want the roads to break down because these businesses are making a ton of money off of it. The people that put the asphalt down are making a ton of money off of it. And if they knew that they could put something out there that could last for hundreds of years, then they'll all be out of business. Those things exist. And so that's why it's not out there. That's why they keep upgrading our phones and, and watches and computers. And I mean, computers, you're lucky for your computer to last five to six years. If you got a Mac, it may last nine just because they're built better. But that's a side point. But <laughs> when it comes to those things, eventually it's going to completely break down. And cars, the exact same way. Things are built to break. So that way you will end up buying more. It's all part of the marketing, uh, the scheme of our society and in our world today. It's totally made that way. So you get this thing and you think you're going to be satisfied. It's going to make you better. It doesn't. It's the same thing with the pride of life. You think you're going to be somebody? Fantastic. Just start going through the list of celebrities that have made it and have been successful and then they start dabbling in sex and drugs and alcohol and their life has been wrecked either by themselves or the people around them. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So these things never satisfy. And if you want to just take a test, just go out there and observe the world. You don't have to do it yourself. Just observe what's out there and you'll find that it never satisfies. But what I have found at every turn is that the Lord is the only thing that truly satisfies. And the work of God is the only thing that makes me feel like I'm actually somebody because I am when it comes to the work of the Lord. It's what I was designed for. It's what I was made for. And it's the most fulfilling thing that I could ever do with 
with my life. And so this strategy is effective. If you can get people lusting in their flesh, lusting by the things that they see, and having this pride of life, wanting to make themselves somebody because they don't think that they are, then man, you've got them right in your hands and the enemy can make them blind and keep them blind and he can defeat them if they're already saved. It's a very successful plan. He's been doing it from the very, very beginning and that is a strategy. And it doesn't change. Every sin issue you have right now can go back to one of these three things. Every single one of them. Every one of them. Try it out. All right, so now let's talk about this. I wanted to kind of buzz through point number one and point number two because I really wanted to get to this. This is something that was really cool that I spent some time with. Um, I'm hoping that we have enough time to get through all these, but go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. So it's all the way back in the OT. Old Testament. All right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Joshua. Joshua chapter 6. So Joshua 6, 7, 8, and 9 are very unique chapters. They're really cool. We spent some time uh, several years ago going through a study of the book of Joshua in the youth. Um, and, uh, and I remember I was down in Mexico and I was chatting with uh, Brian Brown, Pastor Brian Brown, and he gave me this nugget out of Joshua 6 through 9. And uh, I started looking into it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And then I preached it when I was out in Missouri and I'm like, oh man, this is, so I'm never going to forget it. Like this, this is one of those things where I really wanted to share this with you guys because it's like a gold mine. All right, so let's talk about the three enemies. So the three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're going to be able to see the world, the flesh, and the devil in Joshua 6, 7, 8, and 9. All right, so Joshua chapter 6. So Joshua chapter 6, this is the battle of Jericho. Somebody give me a quick synopsis, quick summary of the battle of Jericho. What unfolded? The people of Israel marched around the city a bunch of times. A bunch? How many? Do you know? Forty, thirty. 14? <laughs> Didn't they do it twice a day? No. no just Once a day. Okay. For six days. And then, they and then the seventh day. They did it seven times. times. So I was close. <laughs> yeah, but not off. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 12 times, right? It doesn't matter. Just keep going. Okay. We already established it. <laughs> We're good. Um, and then they, they yelled or something, and then the walls fell down. Yes. Flat. Yes, they fell down flat. They did not crumble, they fell down flat. All right. So, this whole story, this is the very first battle. So when you when you think about the book of Joshua, you know, the people of God have been led out of out of Egypt and now the, they cross over the Jericho and now they're in the promised land. And this is the very first city that they're going to take. And God specifically tells them exactly what to do. So you're going to get your people and everyone's going to march around the city and you're going to do this six times and on the seventh day you're going to march around to seven times and at the end of it you're going to shout. So before they could not speak a word at all. They just went with the ark and they had the trumpets and all that stuff. But on the seventh day they marched around to seven times and they blew the trumpet it's really, really loud, and then it says the walls fell down flat, except for one part of the wall. Whose part? Rahab's. Now, why did Rahab's part of the wall not fall? Yeah, she helped the two spies escape when they were as good as dead. So God miraculously did two things. This is really, really cool. The walls did not crumble. They fell down flat. Now, 
just as kind of a side note, these walls were intense. They were three stories high. It was a double wall. They had an outer wall that was six feet thick. And then there was the inner wall that was 12 feet thick. It was about 7.8 acres in size all the way around. So this is massive, massive. And so what you end up having, having happen in this one is that the walls fall down flat. So there's no way into this place. There's absolutely no way to get into this place and to conquer it. It's just like the world, totally like the world. There's no way in, except through Joshua, also named Jesus, by the way. And so you have the walls fall down flat. So once this unfolds, they obey God, God's way, the walls fall down flat, and now that they're flat, Israel can now go up the walls into the city and then conquer it. It didn't crumble. If it would have crumbled, there would have still been no way in because it's a double wall. So there would have been no way in. So God miraculously makes all the walls out of nowhere just fall down completely flat. They're like a ramp and it goes right up into the city. It's really cool, except for Rahab's. She's the only part of the wall that didn't fall because her house was attached right to the wall. And if that wall would have fallen, Rahab and everyone in that house would have been completely dead. Incredible, absolutely incredible. And so what I love about this whole scenario, I wish we had time to really work through a lot of these details, is that he tells them, just obey what God tells you to do and you're going to be able to overcome it. And this reminds me of a couple different things. God's already declared victory. We just need to obey his battle plan and we need to follow Joshua or Jesus. Because if you take the name Joshua and you take it straight from Hebrew into English, it's Joshua. But if you take that same name from Greek into English, it's Jesus. So you technically have a book in your Old Testament titled Jesus and that would be the book of Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus are the same name. And so what God's trying to teach us through this example is that you just need to follow Jesus and you need to march wherever he tells you to march. And it may sound stupid and crazy, but you just do what he tells you to do and you're going to be able to overcome the world. The world does not have to overcome you. It doesn't. If you just follow the lead of the Lord, you can overcome anything in this world. And so that means that if you're not overcoming the world, it's because you don't want to, really. You just want to be a part of it. And so with this in mind, you have verses like this that I love so much. John 16.33, and I'll just read some of these. John 16.33, it says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And in 1 John 4.4, 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And then I love 1 John 5.4. It says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So you have the ability to overcome the world. And frankly, when it comes to the three enemies, this one is the easiest to overcome. The absolute easiest, because it's right in front of your face. And all you need to do is to obey what God has told you to do, and you can overcome the world. And if you're born again today, then you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, and it says very, very clearly that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. You have the power inside of you to overcome the world. So Jericho, when it came to the battle, it was a piece of cake. I mean, the people inside the walls thought that they were safe, and they were completely fine when God had ulterior plans. They had no idea that they were going to, the walls were going to fall down flat and that Israel was going to be able to go right up in and destroy the city and take it. And that's exactly what unfolded. So that's Jericho. But before we leave Jericho, there's a word of warning. It's going to go straight into our next point with the flesh. Take a look at verse 17. Before they even go into the city, God warns them and he tells them something very, very specific. So Joshua 6, verse 17. And the city shall be accursed, even it, 
and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. My goodness, he uses like curse, a curse, curse, curse. So much in that verse. And then he says in verse 19, But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So very specifically, he says, when you go into the city, you're supposed to stay away from the accursed thing. Now, based on the context, you know exactly what this is. That's verse 19. The silver, the gold, vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. That was part of the accursed thing. Now, we're going to talk about that in a minute when it comes to this next part, the flesh. Now, with Joshua 7, go ahead and turn to Joshua 7. Just hold that thought that we just had from verse 17 through 19 in chapter 6 in your mind about the accursed thing. Now you have the battle of the flesh. Now, your flesh is by far probably, I wouldn't say by far, because the devil's pretty pretty dangerous. But your flesh is a adversary that is very, very dangerous because it is with you all the time. When you wake up in the morning, your flesh is there. When you walk throughout your day, your flesh is there. When you go to bed at night, your flesh is there. Your flesh is always with you. You are always with this enemy that you have. And that's why we struggle with sin. That's why we think things that we ought not to think. That's why we do things we ought not to do. It's because of our flesh. And Achan is a great picture of the flesh. So in chapter 7, we got Achan. He takes of the accursed thing. Take a look at verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Now, no one else knew about it. It was just Achan. He took of the accursed thing, and no one else knew about it. So Israel's going about their day and just doing their own thing. In fact, if you keep reading in this chapter, you find out that the next battle, who knows the next city? What's the next city? AI. So the next city is AI. And they're like, AI, it's much smaller. There's not a whole lot of people there. Let's just take a smaller number of men and let's just go and let's conquer it. So they go off to fight AI and then what happens? They get their butts whooped. <laughs> Dudes took an L. All right. So they ended up getting, I mean, ripped. So, so you get to the point where you have 36 men died in this battle. Israel is now humiliated. Now, this is unbelievable. When you really think about it, what just happened with Jericho? Miracle, right? It would have caused all the enemies of God to tremble. Their God made the walls of Jericho fall down flat. I mean, when has that ever happened? It's never happened. And then all of a sudden you have this little battle of AI and these guys get their butts whooped. And then men actually died as a result. And so here you have Joshua, who is in great distress because he's like, God, you told us that anyone that we come face to face with, I mean, they're, they're as good as dead. Like anywhere we go, like the land is ours and anyone that we face that comes against us, I mean, they're, they're defeated already. And now this happens with AI. So Joshua is just in a huge strait. And so it says in verse six, take a look at verse six of chapter seven. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou 
at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And look what God says. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Get up. Get up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. So Joshua had no idea. And here he's starting to sound like the old Israelites that actually died out in the wilderness. And God's like, Would you just get up? Get up. We got, we got issues to deal with. There is sin among the camp of the Israelites, and that's why this unfolded. So now he reveals all this to Joshua in verse 11, where he says, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen, and disassembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. And then he continues. He says, listen, you guys are not going to be successful until you root this sin out and you get it taken care of. And the reality is for you and I, it's the same thing for you and me. There are sins that are going on in your life, in your heart, that no one else knows about. And you've taken those things and you've hid them deep within the earth. And you just pretend like it doesn't even exist, but God knows exactly what's going on. And probably the reason why that you've not been successful in your Christian walk is because you've continued to hide these things and you're not willing to deal with them. Because notice what he says in verse 11. Who sinned? Israel did. But wait, who sinned though? Achan. But yet God says they have sinned. They have. And so this should teach you something too. Your sin that no one else knows about can affect all of us. All of us, including mine. The sin in my life can affect the fruitfulness of this ministry. You know, I've thought at times in uh, our youth ministries past and even currently at times when things are really kind of rocky, maybe we've not been as prosperous or successful in reaching lost people and actually growing in our, in our walk with the Lord because there's sin amongst all of us that we're not willing to deal with. I mean, based upon this pattern, they could not defeat the enemy because of sin that existed among their camp. It's the same thing among us. It's the same thing among our church. I think that our ministry and our church would be much more fruitful if people really took to heart the sin issues of their life. And they weren't hiding it among their stuff. So God tells them what to do. Verse 13, he says, up, sanctify the people, and let's deal with this once and for all. And he starts working them through. So what God does is God knows who it is. He knows what's going on, and so he reveals it. And so starting in verse 16, he starts to take each of the tribes. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, was the son of Zerah, the son of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, 
and 200 shekels of silver, there's the silver, and a wedge of gold, same thing we saw in chapter 6, of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them, there it is, there it is, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, right there, coveted them, and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran under the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent, and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent, and brought them unto Joshua, and unto all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all the Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his sons, sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and burned them, them, them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day, so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. So his sin did not just affect the nation of Israel, but the consequence of his sin immediately affected his sons and his daughters and everything that he had. Everything. You have got to get in the habit of dealing with your sin. It is much better to get into the habit of dealing with your sin early. Now is the time in your life to really learn how to deal with sin. When you get older and you have more responsibility and you have a spouse and you have kids and you have more stuff, your sin will affect everything that you touch. I mean, it already does, but your responsibility level is a lot lower now. And so get into the habit now of dealing with your sin before it really starts to wreak havoc on a lot of people. But I'm telling you, it will affect our ministry. It will. Now, the reason why this was an accursed thing, and this is just kind of a, a side note. Um, when you go back and you start to see, like we just read in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, the reason why it was accursed was because these things belonged to the Lord. The gold, the silver, all these vessels, they belonged to God. Achan knew when he saw these things, that was the Lord's, and he took it for himself. It wasn't because the silver or the gold in itself was somehow cursed. It wasn't that way. It was his heart attitude. He knew it belonged to God. He knew it was for the Lord, and he took it anyway. So there's a word of warning when it comes to these things. The things that belong to the Lord, which honestly, I mean, what belongs to the Lord? Everything. Everything. Yes. Everything belongs to God. So when you take something that belongs to the Lord, it becomes cursed when you decide to use them for any other purpose. It's huge. This is a huge one. Huge. If God has given you a talent or a gift or something that you're just really, really good at and you take that thing that God gave you and you use it for you, it becomes a curse to you. But if you're willing to take that thing and turn it around and offer it to the Lord for God to be glorified in and through it, then it's a blessing. This is a huge lesson. This is a major lesson that I hope you guys can really learn. Because for Achan, it caused him and his family to perish. But that's what the flesh does. That's exactly what the flesh does. Flesh is so good. And that's why Paul said, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And there's so many things we can talk about when it comes to the flesh. But this is such a great example, a great example of our enemy, the flesh, where we see it and we want it and we covet it and we take it and then we suffer the consequences. And we somehow think we're just going to get away with it when it just doesn't work that way at all.
at all. So that's major. We can learn a lot. We can learn a lot from Achan. Um, let's take a look at one more verse. Go over to, hold your spot here. Go over to Colossians 3. Hold your spot in Joshua because we're coming right back. But go to Colossians chapter 3. I love this passage. It's a really great passage when it comes to really overcoming our flesh and having a proper perspe- perspective. Colossians chapter 3. Okay, again, very difficult at times to live out, but this is where you need to go to the Word of God and you need to believe what God says over how you feel. If ye then be risen with Christ, which means you are born again, you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And here's why. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he keeps going on and on and on and on and on. If you're born again, you need to learn how to seek the things that are above and to set your affection on things above not the things on the earth, which means you should not be seeking the things on the earth. And this is very difficult for us to learn, especially for those of you that are, that are just, you're younger and you're, you're not as mature in your thinking, and that's okay. God's patient with that, but you need to learn how to do this. You need to learn how to set your affection on things above. If you are willing to seek the things that are eternal, because really when you think about it, what are the things that are above? What are the things that are in heaven right now? The Word of God, because Psalm 119 says that the, the word of the Lord is settled, is forever settled in heaven. God in His throne and the souls of men. So if you set your affection on those three things, God, His throne, His glory, His will, whatever He wants for you, the word of God, and the word of God takes priority over anything else in your life, and the souls of men, and caring for the people around you. If you set your affection on those things, and you seek those things, you will not struggle with the things of this world. You won't. When I stop doing that, I struggle with the world every time. Every time. Every single time. Because I'm always looking somewhere. You're, you're always looking somewhere. You're always setting your affection somewhere. It's either here or there. Every time. And if I don't put my affections there, if I don't care deeply about the things of God, then my heart's going to care about the things of this world. And so you have to learn how to, okay, I need to stop caring about this. I know I care about this. God, I struggle with this. I struggle with, with caring about what people think, with the stuff that I have, with the things that I want to do in my future. But if you learn how to set your affection on things above, you will not struggle with the things of this earth. You just won't. And the enemy, you've completely disarmed the enemy from really taking advantage of you. If Achan would have done that, if he would have really had God's will in mind, he wouldn't have coveted after those things. And I'm telling you, the, the temptation of coveting after something or the temptation of whatever sin is not the sin in itself. I mean, think about it. When did the sin of covetousness actually take hold of Achan? When did it? Come on, you guys are smart. It's not rocket science. When he saw it? When he took it. When he took it. Because he saw it, right? 
but it's the actions of after he saw it of what he did thereafter. It makes perfect sense. That covetousness took hold of his life when he saw it, and then he took action, and then he coveted it, and then took it. That's when it completely defiled everything. So it's not a sin to be tempted. It's what you do with the temptation. It's your action upon that temptation. That's where you cross the line every single time. Now, if you end up struggling with temptation for so long, it's only a matter of time before you actually follow through with it because you're putting yourself in that scenario. That's a whole different ballgame. But you really need to think about that because if my affections are set on things above, then that temptation is not going to have a stronghold over me. It just won't because my heart's not there. My heart is not with that temptation. My heart is with the Lord. I might be tempted for a moment, but my heart is with the Lord, and I don't want that to compromise my relationship with God. It'll help you out tremendously. So that is the flesh. That is Achan. All right, and then lastly, go to Joshua 9. Joshua 9. Now, this one's kind of cool. Um, we skipped chapter 8 because chapter 8 basically shows you after they dealt with sin, they went back and they battled against AI, and they won. And so now let's talk about the devil. The devil. And he doesn't like being revealed, and so... There is a little element of fear in my heart after talking about some of these things. But, nevertheless, it's the truth, and we need to hear it. So Joshua chapter 9. Now, this one's a really interesting one. All right, so take a look at this. Verse 1. Actually, let's start off in verse... Yeah, let's just do verse 1. All right, and it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side of Jordan, in the hills, and in the valleys, and in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua, Jesus, and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon... That's where Brandon's from. Just kidding. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work, what's the word? Willily. Willily. I just want everyone to say it. This is so much fun. Willily. Willily, wily, I think willily. 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 I was thinking like wily coyote. It is like that. It's a form of the word. If you study out the etymology, no, it's willily. All right. So they did work willily, and this is deceitfully. All right. So these guys, these Gibeonites, are actually from the tribe of, um, uh, of a small tribe from the Hivites. But these Gibeonites, when they heard what Joshua had done into, to Ai, to Jericho and to Ai, they did work willily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors. Oh, okay. So now they're going to be deceitful. And they took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles old and rent and bound up and old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp of Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, We become from a far country. I'm sure they sounded just like the two. We become from far country. No, I'm just kidding. Now, therefore, make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye, and from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God, for we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, to Og, the king of Bashan, which was, at, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore our elders and the inhabitants of our country spake unto us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go and meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants, therefore now make ye a league with us. Now these guys were totally lying. Totally. 
because they were among the Hivites. They were among the people of the land, but they clothed themselves with clothes that made them look like they've been traveling for a long period of time. Shoes that had holes that looked really, really bad. Bread that was rotten, moldy, dry. All this stuff. And they said, we are ambassadors from a far country and we're here because we want to join you because we want to serve your God. For the name and for the fame of your God, we want to serve him. Okay, now, here's, here's, the, here's the issue on this one, all right? So they were not being honest at all, at all. Now, do you know what God actually told the nation of Israel prior in like Deuteronomy and even in Exodus? Do you know what he said? Anybody know? Nope, not a, All right, well, let's look at it. Go to Exodus. Hold your spot here and go back to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Yeah, it's Vittles. I know. Yeah, in case you didn't know that, by the way, Victuals, it's not actually pronounced Victuals, it's pronounced Vittles, but it doesn't look like that at all. Go look it up. It's totally legit. I just don't like it. All right. <laughs> Exodus 23. Someone read for me verse 32 and 33 super loud. All right, Noah, you got it. I'm sorry, not Noah. How did I say Noah? That's your brother. Sorry, Benjamin. <laughs> A main, name popped in my head and it wasn't him. All right, go ahead. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. So what did God tell him? Don't do it! We want to make a covenant. No! I mean, honestly, that was kind of the real simple. Are you from the land? No. But see, this is why they dressed themselves up differently, had different clothes, different shoes. They had old bread, everything, because they were pretending to be from a very far country. And so what did these guys do? They deceived them. And then Israel's like, yeah, sure, let's make a league. But what did Israel not do? Go back to Joshua 9. Look at verse 14 and verse 15. Someone read those for me. 14 and 15. Go ahead. And the men took up their rituals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua, and Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. So verse 14, what did they not do? They didn't talk to God about it. They had no idea. These guys were so good at faking it and just playing the game that when it came down to it, they didn't talk to God. Now, if they would have gone to God, I mean, I just picture God just waiting, all right? So he's kind of stepping back, right? And so Joshua, he's the leader, and this unfolds. They're like, okay, we got these people. They're from a very far country, and they say they're ambassadors, which also, by the way, as a side note, um, is a great picture of uh, false Christians uh, because Christians are called ambassadors. Uh, we are called as Christians that we are from a very far country. Our country is actually in heaven with the Lord, and that these people wanted to make a league with God's people because of the name and the fame of God. So these guys were counterfeits. These actually are a great picture of false teachers, false messengers, false Christians, dressing up the part, looking as if everything's a-okay, and Joshua did not say, hey God, so we have these people that came to us, what should we do? God would have said, no, these are Hivites. I told you, do not make a league with them, because if you do, Exodus 23, it's going to be a snare unto you. It may not be today, but it's definitely going to be a snare to you down the road. Do not make a covenant with them. Do not welcome them. They are your enemies. Don't do it. But they didn't ask God. 
Mm, how many times is the enemy so crafty that he is so willing to give you something that looks good and you don't talk to God about it and so then you welcome that thing in because it looks good, it looks godly, it looks Christian, it looks like something God would approve, but you not once ever talked to God and got counsel from Him about it at all. And you just get that thing in there. And it may not bite you today, it may not be a week, it may not be a month, but I'm telling you, it may years down the road, it's going to bite you in the rear end. And this thing actually goes back years even before this. If you were to study out who these guys were as far as the Gibeonites, you go back and you find out that Israel actually shafted them a long time ago with a lady named Dinah. Just look it up later. I'm telling you, this is huge. So there are seeds of deceit that were already sown because of the nation of Israel and how they treated the Gibeonites. The enemy knew that, and he's like, if I can just get them to get in there, if I can just get them to get in there and make a covenant with them, I can get them to disobey God, and by disobeying God, they're going to bring in their false gods, they're going to marry their guys into their ladies, their men to our women, and they're going to defile them from the inside. And this is exactly what the devil does. He is so good at what he does that he can dress something up and make it look good. But because you're not willing to talk to God and wait for God's best, then you will gladly take that which is good. And the enemy will do this every single time. He will gladly give you something that is good in exchange for the best. He is so good at this. I, this has happened in my life so many times, and I have gotten burned, and I haven't known it until years later. Years later. And the only way you can know, the only way you can know, is not by your human reasoning, and not by your understanding, and not even from the counsel of the people around you necessarily. It is only going to come from God. That's it. And this is huge. This is huge. I mean, I, I would say as far as where you guys are at, the best case in point, when, best example I guess I could say with this in your life, is going to be in who you date and your future career and the college you go to and the things that you do while you're in high school with your spare time. I'm telling you, those three things in your life are huge. The devil's going to dress it up and say, hey, I've got an opportunity to evangelize this person. Oh, really? <laughs> Come on. For real? You haven't evangelized anyone for the past two years of your life? And you think that now you're going to step into this role that looks like a great opportunity that you're now going to win people to the Lord? Give me a break. I mean, come on. This happens all the time. I've made excuses for this in my life for years when I was in high school. And it, I, I was just fooling myself. I, I ended up in a terrible relationship that I should have never been in that is still killing me to this day because of mistakes that I made in my past. There are things that I took some advantages for the Lord, but at the end of the day, the, re the, really, the reason why I really went after this opportunity was just only to satisfy my own flesh because it was going to make me somebody. And I wanted to be known as someone that, that it was just carnal and it was stupid. And this is going to happen in your life. And I should have been wise. I should have gone to the Lord and I should have talked to Him. And this is why when we make big decisions that can have huge ramifications, you should be talking to God. And say, God, should I be making this decision? Is this the right person to have in my life as my friend? Is this the right person to have in my life as far as who I'm dating? Is this the right career move? Should I be even thinking about this when it comes to my college that I'm going to be pursuing after high school? All these things can be laid at the line with the Lord and let Him answer you. You've got to do it. And if you don't, and that's fine. You can do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, you're going to pay for it. You will, for sure. Because the devil is going to dress it up and make it look super good when it's nothing that God wanted you to do. So this unfolded in the nation of Israel in Joshua 9 because they did not ask counsel at the mouth of the Lord. The devil is going to work subtly. And of course, I love that word, willily. 
and deceitfully to get you to compromise. Because if he can do that, he can weaken your hand later down the line. He's always going to be willing to give you something good if you're going to give up that which is best. Every single time. Every time. All right, so that's Joshua 6, 7, 8, and 9. Just some things to think about. On the back side of your guys' study sheet, you've got some questions just to kind of reflect over a little bit. Uh, these would be great questions for you to answer. In what specific ways are you struggling with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Are there any secret sins in your life like Achan that are killing your ability to glorify God and hindering the people around you? And are you willing to finally deal with them? And is there anything in your life where you are settling for good or better rather than receiving the best from the Lord? These are great questions for you to think about. And I really hope that you guys take some time to think about it. All right, we're going to close with a word of prayer. Um, Again, like we always do, you can pray with the people around you, share some prayer requests, and then you guys can be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It truly does give us everything that we need for life and how to live godly. And I pray that we would take this message to heart. I pray that we would always be aware of our enemy and his tactics and what he wants to do and how he wants to just corrupt everything that you're wanting to do inside of us. And especially this last point, seeing the picture of the Gibeonites and how they were just deceitful workers, the false messengers, and they weave their way into the nation of Israel and it was something that was going to hinder them down the line. And it certainly did when you take a look at it throughout Israel's history. And so I pray, God, that we would take these things to heart and really learn from these things and not make the same mistakes. So thank you for loving us. Um, Thank you for caring for us. And uh, especially while we were your enemies and and even the mistakes that we make, uh, you're just such a good God. And I'm, I'm just thankful for your mercy and for your grace. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.